Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, we're back in our series in the Psalms, going through um, these songs of ascent. And this is the the eighth song of ascent, so Psalm 127. And let me read read along. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time, for this word, for this psalm. and Just to think, uh, written by Solomon thousands of years ago. It's recorded for us and how it has uh, impacted your people throughout the ages. And it's here for our instruction today. So, Lord, help us to listen, help us to understand, help us to remember, help us to apply these words to our lives that we may grow further into the likeness of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you all can remember times and circumstances in your life in which you have uttered words um, somewhere along the lines of, well, that was useless, or what a waste of time. Um, Instances in which you just felt um, exasperated or frustrated. um, And, uh, you know, for most of us, we're familiar with those times of frustration and failures and um, yet, but, you know, many of us, the things which frustrate us most, they're, they're not those um, situations in which, uh, you know, things didn't go our way, but situations in which we've wasted time, energy, our efforts, uh, resources um, on some endeavor which, you know, didn't turn out the way we expected it. And uh, yet what's more discouraging is sometimes when we take a step back and we look at the major areas of our lives and the grand scheme of our lives and we feel the same frustration. Um, Life in a fallen world is full of frustrations and vanities and fruitless endeavors, and what's worse is the fact that most of the things we do, if viewed in light of eternity in the grand scheme of things, can appear to be useless, of little significance, and even a waste of our time and energy. And in looking at this psalm, it says it's, it's a, a psalm of Solomon, and just not only that it's a psalm of Solomon, but um, just the content of it, you know, you can't help but think of what Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the beginning of that book, in chapter 1, he says this, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. In this passage, we're reminded of the vain cycle in most of life in the world, and that 
what has been done will eventually be undone. And what we do accomplish in life has been accomplished before and will be again so that what we do may not seem like it's really of much significance. Unless, of course, the reasons and the purpose for our endeavors is significant. In Solomon, he frames this song of ascents in the context of the major endeavors and concerns of one's life, or, or at least the most routine and common um, activities, the building of a home, the safety and security of one's community and family, earning a living, providing for the household, and raising a family. And as with all songs of ascents, it, it's intended to be a, a means of reminder of worship, um, uh, something that they would recite and sing to one another as they are traveling to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, and, and it would be, in a sense, an encouragement. And, and there is a sense that in this psalm there is encouragement, but there's also this um, sense of vanity, of frustration. And there's this contrast, this duality between uh, the frustrations of, of most people in the world and the faithfulness of God. And yet this, this psalm is primarily, as the rest of the songs of ascent, it, it's, it's a reminder for the people, a reminder of why they are going up to worship, of who it is they are worshiping, of, of Yahweh, their God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his promises to his people, that, that God is the giver of all life. He is our provider, our protector, our hope and peace. He provides for his people in his ways and in his timing. And yet we and most of the world are foolish to try and seize for ourselves in our own timing what he freely gives in his. It's pretty much the main thrust of this psalm. You know, mankind and even some of us, we tend to trust in our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own resources. And because of that, we're prone to worry. We're prone to fear, anxiety, and failure because we're limited. We're limited in our abilities, we're limited in our wisdom, we're limited in our resources. Yet this psalm reminds us that, that God provides for all these things and, and, and we are, are, are not to worry. We are not to be anxious, we are not to be fearful if we truly trust in God. And in this song of a sense, we see four areas of life in which Solomon reveals to us a clear contrast between the frustrations of man's futile endeavors and the faithfulness of God to provide for his people. There's four areas of life that Solomon contrasts. Um, the fretting of the unbeliever and the faithfulness of God. And it's sad to say that sometimes we fret just as much as unbelievers. And this is a reminder not to fret, not to worry. And so we see these four areas. First, um, the, this, this uh, reminder to trust in God in our shelter, in our shelter. He starts off in, in verse 1. He says, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And, and right away, we see that there is this common activity of, of building a house. And, and some of us, you know, we don't, we haven't literally or uh, uh, built a house or we haven't engaged in the building of our house. Um, some of us may never build a house, but um, nonetheless, we live in houses that were built. And there is this requirement for building a house. Um, more so probably in, in their day and age, uh, more in an agrarian society, an uh, agricultural society, a, a, a society where you, you would have uh, fields and you would, you would uh, work the fields or, or flocks or whatever it may be, and, and you would um, have to build your own house. 
Or, or e- even if you, um, as what would happen in, in some um, instances where, where you had a legacy of uh, the family farm, the family land, and uh, oftentimes in, in uh, the, the Hebrews' family, uh, their heritage, there would be the, the patriarch would have a home, and then his sons would then build on to that home. And they would build on rooms as they would get married and start their own families. And, and then maybe even afterwards uh, build a little bit um, off of that main structure somewhere else in the field. But nonetheless, they would have to build a home. And yet Solomon reminds us that unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. There's this reminder uh, that there's a need for a house. There's a need for shelter, a common need in life, shelter from the elements. Uh, And and not just shelter from the elements, but um, storage for our stuff that we need, our clothing, our, our pots and pans, our tools, the, the things we use just to uh, get through life, that, that we, we need a home, we, and those homes need to be built, and they need to be built by someone, um, and in that day, it was up to the, the patriarch, the head of the home. There's this need to build, but there's also the responsibility of building which this first verse implies. And this responsibility would fall to the head of the household, the patriarchs, or or the able-bodied men of the family or the community, that someone would have to build. And there's also implied here, not only the need to build and the responsibility of building, but the priority for building. That... that, uh, life would continue, that, that they couldn't just live out amongst the elements. And, and even, you know, as, as the people would go up to Jerusalem during their, their um, feast to worship, there's in a sense this, this reminder of their need for shelter in one of the feasts, the, the Feast of Booths, that they would go up and, and they would, during this one particular feast, they would have to um, in a sense, build booths or, or uh, lean-to shelters or, or tents that would remind them of their wilderness wanderings. That once they were sojourners, they, they did not have a land, they did not have a, a stable, solid uh, home to live in. There's this need and this desire for a home, for a land, for uh, just to live in this world for your posterity. And yet Solomon says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. And he's not just talking about the physical structure as if the Lord is physically building it. This is more figurative. And and not just the, the, the structure, that he, he provides the materials, he provides the place, he provides the resources that we can have homes. But there's a sense that this is, this is alluding to uh, the family, our household, our, our, uh, you know, our home. You, you think of, uh, you know, some of, uh, you know, even in secular literature, they talk about kings, the house of so-and-so, the house of you know, uh, you know, King Arthur or whoever, you know, the house of you know, this ruler. And even the head of a household, even a common person, that's your house. It's not just the building, the structure, but it's the people. This is, in a sense, what Solomon is alluding to. Not just the physical structure, but... The, the, the well-being of the family. And unless the Lord builds that house, those who build it labor in vain. It, it, it reminds me of a spiritual reality, which, which Jesus points to. And, and Solomon is, in a sense, alluding to this, but, but Jesus, um, he elaborates on this 
this principle. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he says this in Matthew chapter 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Ultimately, this is what Solomon's trying to teach us here. That unless the Lord builds a house, not just the, uh, providing for the, the, the physical resources and the, and the means, and even the, the builders to build that physical structure, uh, not only that, but primarily the people within the house, the household, the family, unless the Lord builds it, those who labor, or those who build it, labor in vain. This is what Jesus is saying in his Sermon on the Mount. You know, unless you build your household on the Word of God, you will labor in vain. And there's all sorts of, you know, you can go to different homes and different families, and in a sense, uh, see what they built their house on. The ideologies, the wisdom, or the foolishness, or the vanity, or the, you know, the thriftiness, the values in their home. And and what Solomon is alluding to and what Jesus elaborates on is that we need to build our homes on the Word of God. And God needs to be a part of our household. And if he is, then when the storms of life come, as Jesus is alluding to, then our house will not fall apart. Our home will not fall apart. Our family will not fall apart because it's founded on the rock. We may lose the physical structure of our home. We may, we may live in an apartment or a condo or, or different homes, but if our house, our our figurative house, our family is built upon the rock of the Word of God, then it doesn't matter where we live physically, spiritually, um, we will not fall apart. Our house will stay intact. This is what Solomon is alluding to. This is the the first uh, area of life that he Um, shows this contrast between the frustrations of man's futile endeavors and the faithfulness of God to provide for his people in our shelter. Second, he goes to another area of life. The second area of life is in our security. In our security. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And we we don't really see this so much in our day and age because... We don't live in a society or a culture where there's, um, in a sense, uh, uh, city-states or um, kingdoms in, in Israel's day and age, and, and even throughout um, the Middle Ages and, and um, even some parts of the world today, there, there's those, these small cities or cities which are, in a sense, a, a, a castle, or they, they need to be defended, walled cities. Um, in, in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East, uh, almost every city um, was walled. It had to have defenses, um, however small it was, because there was bandits, because there was um, raiders, because there was armies of nations. There was enemies. There, there was a, a, a need to have someone stand watch over the city. There was a need for, for protection, for security, for soldiers to have watchmen who stay awake on the walls, armed, to provide security from the enemies. And yet, as Solomon says here, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And it's not just the the enemies, those who would do harm, but there's a need for uh, security from thieves, from people who would come in and, and steal your stuff, or, or just to sleep. There's a sense that, you, you know, uh, 
oftentimes, um, you know, especially the, the man of the house, or um, you could, you know, there's people that live in certain areas of uh, uh, the world where it's dangerous or where there's thieves and they just have a hard time sleeping because someone might steal their stuff. They might steal their car. They might um, steal something out of their yard or their garage or, you know, maybe they've had break-ins. The same is true in, in, in the, the time of um, Solomon when he wrote this psalm. But even more so because uh, they could have whole uh, uh, armies just come and raid them. There always needed to be someone on watch. And, you know, I, you know, spending uh, years in the military, this was the most basic military duty was to stand watch. Everybody had to do it at some point in time. You had to stand watch, and you knew what you had to do. And, and, and uh, sometimes even as uh, you would rise in rank, even you, you could get to a pretty high rank and still have to stand watch, maybe not as a private, but you're, you're watching over the command center. You're watching over the command post. You're, you're uh, you know, watching the phones. Uh, you're, you're standing watch. And uh, it's interesting because there, there's this, this verse um, that I, I can relate to um, because of my military experience. It, it says in Psalm 130, verse 6, it says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. And you think, uh, you know, in all militaries, uh, there's, there's uh, security, there's standing guard duty, there's standing watch, and oftentimes that duty comes um, in the middle of the night. Or sometimes you get the worst shift, you get like three to four, so that you can't really get much sleep, and then you're on watch, and then you have maybe an hour until the day starts to try to get some more sleep, but nonetheless, uh, oftentimes, those on watch were on watch at night. And what did they long for? They longed for the morning so that there would no longer be an imminent threat because more often than not, people would attack at night under the cover of darkness. Thieves would come and they'd steal your stuff at night. Uh, you need uh, security lights and security cameras at night. And so the watchman longs for the morning. You know, Solomon tells us, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And this is true, especially for Israel. Solomon could see this in Israel's history and in the history of the nations around Israel that oftentimes didn't matter. Didn't matter how many watchmen you had or how well fortified your city was because at any time, a bunch of city-states or other nations could group together, they could ally together, they could come together and surround you and lay siege to your city. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And it's not just that, that threat of danger that reminds him of, of this principle, but the, the deliverance of the Lord. All throughout Israel's history, they, they were uh, delivered by the skin of their teeth at the last moment. And the Lord does this to show his care for us. But in this, uh, this need, this requirement to watch, we also um, see the implication as in um, you know, the principle of shelter. We see the responsibility of watching that that this would often fall to the patriarchs, the head of the household, the able-bodied men, those, those uh, military-age males, um, the father of the household. And, and more often than not, um, in this uh, category, this area of life, to provide security, to watch for your house, to watch for your community, um, as every other area of life, it's, it's the men that uh, struggle with worry, anxiety, fears, because this is a huge responsibility. 
And yet uh, Solomon says, you know, unless the Lord watches over the city, which shows the need for prayer, the need for faith, the need for trust, but also that, you know, if, if you belong to God, if this is, you live in a community, a city, uh, as Israel did, uh, that worshiped the Lord, that was faithful to the Lord, that the Lord would watch over the city. So we, we see this need to watch, the responsibility of, watch, but, of watching, but also the priority for watching, that there is a priority implied in here that, that life would continue, that their, their uh, city, their community would be prosperous, that there would be uh, a posterity, that children would survive, that your family would live on. But Israel, as just like us, we need to continually be reminded that unless the Lord watches over the city, it doesn't matter how many um, armed men we have, how many security cameras, how many um, watchdogs or whatever it may be, it's all in vain. And yet, in Psalm 34, 7, it says this, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. It reminds me of, you know, in, in Hezekiah's day, as, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sennacherib and the, the Assyrians were um, threatening to uh, come and, and uh, to ransack Jerusalem, and uh, Hezekiah prays, and uh, one night, angel of the Lord comes, and he slaughters 185,000 Assyrians. He delivers them. This is, uh, in a sense, true for us as well. Though, you know, we may not be in the same situation or even a similar situation. There are believers in the world who maybe they be, they're living in uh, lands where it's predominantly Muslim. Uh, we think of areas in, in Africa where uh, they're always under constant threat of uh, some Muslim um, band of warriors to come, come through and raid their village and... and uh, kill the men and take away the women and children. And this is surely something, a hope, a trust that they have to uh, rest in. That the Lord would watch over their village, over their community, over their family, so that they could sleep. So we see these, these areas of life. We see first um, the the uh, contrast of our, our shelter and in our security, and then third, in our sustenance. Our sustenance. Verse 2, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. And just like the other ones, just as in our shelter and in our security, in our sustenance, there's this implication that there is a need to work. We need to work. We need to provide for our households. We need to make a living. We need to um, go out and, and, and gather food. Um, in our day and age, that's going to the grocery store. It's, it's going to buy the things we need to get through this life. And we have to do that. There's a responsibility to do that. But in the end, it's God who provides for us. It's interesting, you know, um, often see, uh, not so much here, but when I was living in California, um, I'd see this interesting paradox of, you know, a lot of homeless people. Most homeless people, if you get to know them or you hear about their stories, um, you know, they, they may have sob stories of, of um, you know, a bad home life and, and bad family life and, and uh, substance abuse and this and that. But the bottom line is that um, the main reason why they're homeless is they just want to live according to their own rules. And they're content at, at that level of, um, or that standard of living. 
They, they, they don't want to work. And yet, I, I've, more often than not, I'd see this, this interesting paradox that, that, that you'd see um, homeless people working, working hard, gathering recyclables, <laughs> scrounging, um, scavenging, just to get by. And, and yet, you know, for whatever reason, they're homeless, maybe because they didn't want a real job. And, and certainly, you know, one foolish and sinful decision led to another, led to another, led to another in a downward spiral to where they're homeless. But yet, God has created the world in such a way that everybody has to work. And here they are because they didn't want to work according to um, society's ways and, and, and with schooling and education and, and uh, a workplace and a boss. Um, now they're working on the streets, scavenging, and sometimes hard work. Uh, this shows God's design for work, that there is a need to work. There is a need to work, and, and too often, more often than not, um, we see um, in our society, we see the, the other side to that, the workaholics. We see the anxious workers. We see those that are working out of fear. There's this, this constant fear and anxiety that fuels them to work, uh, whether it's rent or bills or hunger, taxes, emergencies, working for their own reputation and, and legacy or um, just because they don't want to suffer disappointment and uh, failure. We see a, a lot of workers, and I'm sure you can, um, you know, if you work for a company, you don't have to look far and you can see an anxious worker, and sometimes that's us. We're, there's anxiety all throughout our workday. Solomon reminds us, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And there's no way that, that, that Solomon is, is contradicting what he says in Proverbs, because all throughout Proverbs, he talks about promoting uh, diligence and thrift and discipline and work. He uh, denounces the sluggard, the lazy person. So many principles uh, about work, about being uh, thrifty, about being frugal, about being disciplined. And yet here he says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Those who are not trusting in God. It's a, it's a reminder um, to the people of God. So we, we see this contrast in our sustenance and in, in the need to work. Um, also, we see it in the responsibility to work as the other areas of life. That, that responsibility falls primarily on the heads of the household. And there's this priority of work to, to perpetuate life for our posterity and, and for, um, sadly, sometimes uh, the anxious toil is for uh, prosperity, to have more than what we really need. But as Solomon is contrasting this uh, vanity um, in toil with the faithfulness of God to provide, I'm reminded of uh, Ecclesiastes, um, you know, to, he, he writes at the end of his, his life, and he, he's, he's trying to figure out what's the meaning of it all. What's the meaning of it all? And, and we see a picture of this in this psalm, in Psalm 127, but I'm reminded Ecclesiastes 2, and, and uh, Solomon at the end of Ecclesiastes 2 in verse 20, um, he's, he's talking about toiling and work and labor, and he says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because... Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving a heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. He goes on, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink 
and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And this is what, in a sense, what Solomon is saying in in, uh, verse 2 of Psalm 127, that it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. He's not saying that, that um, hard work is, is wrong or that we shouldn't rise up early or go late to rest. But what he's saying is that we shouldn't work anxiously. We should work faithfully. We should work uh, trusting in God, resting in Him, um, working because He has given us work to do, because He has designed this world in such a way that we have to work. Work was, was given to mankind before the fall. It's not a result of the fall. The, the thorns and thistles, as, as God said to Adam, were a result of the fall. That all our work, within our work, there would be challenges. There would be opposition. And, and sometimes I, you know, I, I did this as a, as a young person, as a teenager, and someone in their young 20s, and, and probably some of you had thought this way, that if I just find that one job, that one career that I love, then I'll be happy. That I'll, I'll work, and I'll work hard, and I'll be happy, and there will be harmony and peace, and everything will be just wonderful. And, but then we work different jobs, and some, some of us switch careers often. And, and I, I remember meeting um, several men in, in their 40s and 50s who were, would say, I'm still trying to find out what I want to do with my life. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's just the way God works sometimes, that he leads us into different jobs and careers. And, and even the best one, even the one that's most suited to our talents and our abilities and our desires still comes with trials and challenges. There's still um, frustration. But yeah, what Solomon is getting at is that... Um, we are to work as unto the Lord, trusting in Him and His providence that He has led us to this job, this career, and that through this job, through this career, we are able to provide for our families. We are able to provide for ourselves. We are able to be um, a contributing member of society. We are able to be useful. And we're to trust Him. Not, not working to so much um, gain all the, um, all the pleasures of this world in material possessions and um, experiences and vacations and uh, money to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. But we work unto the Lord. James says this in James chapter 4. He says this, um, reminding um, the people he's talking to, those who would um, have all these, uh, uh, in a sense, delusions of grandeur, or, you know, these, these thoughts of uh, making a lot of money. He says, James chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And that's the bottom line, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. And we're, we're thankful. We still make our plans. We still set goals. We still um, try to advance ourselves and, and try to... Um, uh, make more and give more and do more for God, but ultimately we are to rest in His will. We are to rest in His provision. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon comments on this verse by saying this. He says, um, talking of, in a sense, the unbeliever. He says, hard-earned is their food, scantily rationed and scarcely ever sweetened, but perpetually smeared with sorrow. And all because they have no faith in God and find no, no joy except in hoarding up the gold, which is their only trust. Not thus, not thus would the Lord have his children live. Too often we can look at those um, other verses um, in Proverbs um, all throughout the 
New Testament, those verses concerning work, concerning labor, concerning stewardship. And then in our anxiety, in our fear, in our worry, we can become workaholics. We can, in a sense, eat the bread of anxious toil. <laughs> I'm reminded of, you know, when I was in seminary, I, I, we, we had preaching lab. And we had certain texts that we had to preach from. And I remember one of my classmates um, he actually had to preach on this sermon, and, and he did a wonderful job, he did amazing. Um, and uh, after he got done, he's, he's like, you know, we're giving him feedback, and um, most of it was good and positive, and he says, I'm such an idiot. He's like, I probably got about four hours of sleep last night preparing for this sermon. And it's like right there in the sermon. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. He's preparing for the sermon, working hard. It's toiling anxiously, losing sleep to preach this sermon. And he says, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> and we can do that. We can do that with so many of God's commands that we, you know, Almost in a sense, trying to obey one command, we're disobeying another one. We, we, we require uh, balance. Balance is so crucial in the Christian life. One commentator, he says this, he says, The blessing of God on the labor of the, un the godly is such that his own are provided with all that they need and can rest without anguish. Anguish is that experience by which work is turned into toil. Human labor under the sun becomes toil when God's blessing is absent. It's, it's really all our perspective. It's, it's our outlook. It's not so much the physical exertion, though sometimes we can um, overwork ourselves or, or we can be sluggish and lazy and, and not work at all. And um, sometimes you can look at, at somebody and, and look at the bags under their eyes or look at, you know, their demeanor or how they're carrying themselves, and you can see that they're, they're working too hard, they're overworked, they're, um, they don't have balance in life. And oftentimes it's our perspective. It's our perspective. It's why we are doing what we're doing. We can easily be this anxious worker, this worrisome worker, a fearful worker. John MacArthur, he says of worry that, that it is needless because of God's bounty, senseless because of God's promise, useless because of its impotence to do anything productive, and faithless because it is characteristic of unbelievers. There's this balance of, um, in the Christian life of faith, of trust, of rest in God's providence and his, his sovereignty, but there's also the human responsibility of being obedient, of being disciplined, of being a good steward, or being faithful. And we're to hold those two things in balance. And this is really the contrast here, is that the worry that is characteristic of unbelievers, um, it shouldn't even be named amongst us, because he gives to his beloved sleep. A reminder of Psalm 4 at the end, you know, in this this psalm, uh, Psalm 4, verse 8, and, and this is a, a verse, and, and even the verse before it, that is often uh, given as um, homework for, um, for insomniacs and people who struggle with anxiety, who can't sleep, who worry, who are fearful. Psalm 4, verse 7 and 8, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Oftentimes, we, whenever we lack sleep, it's because of anxiety. It's fear. It's worry. Something's on our mind. Um, the next day or um, this thing that we have to do or a relationship issue. or there, there's, you know, there's no peace. If there's true peace, if there's true trust in God, we, we will sleep. And we are to sleep well. He gives to his beloved sleep. He gives us sleep because we know that God is always working. God never sleeps nor slumbers. He, he, he 
is always working. He is faithful. He's faithful to provide. And so we see these, these uh, lessons of God's faithfulness uh, contrasted with the futility of um, man's anxiety in our shelter, in our security, in our sustenance, and, and finally, in our successors, in our successors. Verses 3 to 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There's, in some commentators, uh, you know, they, they would um, see this, this drastic shift in this psalm and, and think that, well, maybe it's, it's two psalms that were smashed together and, and uh, there, there's many people who think that of other psalms in the Psalter. But there's a sense that as he um, shifts to this, this heritage, his children, to our successors, the fruit of the womb, um, it's almost, um, in a sense, commenting on the previous verses. Uh, he provides in our successors, but in such a way that shows that all the things we worried about um, before, our security, our shelter, our sustenance, um, there's no reason to worry about it. If we're faithful, that he provides. And, and children are, in a sense, evidence of his provision. Because... Um, you know, several places in the Old Testament, it shows either explicitly stating or by way of um, illustration that it is the Lord that opens the womb. It's the Lord that gives children. And yes, there are instances throughout um, life and even in the church of, of childlessness, of infertility, of, you know, singleness, results of the curse. And that's in, in no way saying that, you know, if, if uh, you weren't able to have children or you don't have children that you're um, not blessed. But all throughout the Bible, it, it shows that children are an evidence of God's blessing. And not just in the family, but in the church as well. We see the blessing of children. We, we see the, that the joy that they bring. The, the, the blessing of joy and fruitfulness that, that children bring to a household or even to a church, that, that um, children show us the, the joy of life. And, and there's so many things that you can learn from children. One of the things that you, know, you learn from, they tend to not worry or become anxious. Yes, they're fearful of certain things, but mostly it's dangerous. They're, they're not fearful of the things adults are. They don't think about insurance. <laughs> they, don't, they don't think about bank accounts. They, they just think about, you know, having a snack or going out to play or, or whatever. They're, they're just, what's next? They're happy. They're joyful. They're, they're excited about life. They, and this is, in a sense, what, how we are to live. Our relationship with, with God as his children. Joyful, hopeful, trusting. You know, they, they, children don't think about whether or not the mortgage will be paid, or whether or not they, they don't even know what a mortgage is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just you know, and and oftentimes I, I've met you know people I've have friends who have grown up in households where um, you know their parents they didn't learn until later on that man we were on welfare. We were, I, my mom and dad didn't know how they would make ends meet, but I had no clue about that. I was just happy playing in the dirt, you know, and just what comes next, and, and somehow everything worked out, you know. And oftentimes, you, you know, you can be around the church, and, you know, um, sometimes, it, it, you know, there's people with large families um, in the church, and sometimes families who struggle, and, uh, you know, they raise their kids, and somehow it all works out. God provided. The kids weren't worried. They weren't anxious. <laughs> they were happy. They were joyful. This is God's blessing. It's, it's evidence of, you know, the fruitfulness of life, of his, 
even his command to be fruitful and multiply, we're commanded, um, you know, Adam and Eve were commanded to do that, and they're, um, but it's God that opens the wombs. It's a, it's a clear indication of his blessing. I, I've seen this in churches, in a sense. Um, sometimes when there's pregnancies and more children in church, it, it's an evidence of God's blessing upon the church. Fruitfulness. Joy. There's also this, this blessing of prestige, of help and protection. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. It's um, not as if he's going to uh, use the children to fend off enemies, so to speak, but it, it's, it's the arrows are, um, in a sense, a, a, a missile, something that he, he, can, he directs. We, we are to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and set them on a course, direct them, aim them towards a life of faithfulness. And we launch them out like arrows. We launch them, we prepare them and launch them out into the world to be faithful, um, uh, contributing members of society and even more so for the church and for the sake of God's glory. This is a way in which the children are arrows in the hand of a warrior. That they are the arrows of the patriarch, of the household. They, they, they go out. They go out from the house and they, they in a sense, uh, you know, have an effect on this world. They protect also as well. There's, uh, you know, some sort of protection through children. As you raise them, as they learn to be contributing members of the household and they're learning to be responsible and work around the home, there's, there's a sense of protection that comes from these children, from responsible children. Uh, they help around the house. There, there's protection um, financially. Um, and especially in this day and age, and, and you know, some of us can remember, um, maybe we, we know older people or maybe our grandparents or our ancestors who were farmers. And farmers have big families. Why do they have big families? Because somebody's got to help around the farm. <laughs> Someone's got to, you know, slop the pigs and, and shuck the corn and, and, you know, do all those things around the farm. And that's your your primary uh, workers were your children. And this is especially true of the Israelites in their day and age, and, and you know where they they worked vineyards or they um, had flocks of sheep or goats or you know wh- whatever it was. It was an agrarian society, and they needed helpers. They needed children. These children protected them from uh, 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 financial struggle, financial ruin. They were arrows in the hand of the father. They also provided some sort of uh, relational protection as well to uh, encourage the parents to be that, that source of joy, of hope, of peace, of thankfulness, to bring joy to the home. There's this blessing of prestige as well in the community. That there would be prestige amongst the family for um, a a family of well-behaved, well-trained children. Blessing of help, the blessing of protection that your family would, would, the family line would continue on. And and even more so in the in the um, in the day and age of uh, Solomon and the Israelites, that, that um, it, you know, each family had land. The land was part of the promise, but in order to keep the land, you had to have, uh, you had to have successors. You had to have children. Otherwise, that land would go to somebody else. So there's this, this blessing of a legacy. The, the children would bring the blessing of joy and fruitfulness, the blessing of prestige, help, and protection, and then the blessing of insurance, of rest and legacy. 
As I said, you know, children don't understand, they don't have any concept of health insurance or life insurance, but in the ancient Near East and up until, you know, probably about a couple hundred years ago, children were your insurance policy. They were your life insurance. They were your health insurance, so to speak. Who is going to take care of you when you're elderly? Who is going to take care of you when you're injured or when you're sick? It's your children. And some people, you know, especially people with, with large families, I, I've told some people that have, you know, they, they've struggled. They have maybe 10 kids or so, and they've struggled with jobs and struggling to make ends meet and said, you know, it's going to pay off. It's going to pay off when you're in your 60s and you've got all these kids all around and, you know, you have helpers. Even if you're mean to them, at least one or two of them will still help you out. You know? <laughs> but especially if you're, if you're a good parent, you have so many helpers. It's, it's your insurance policy. But there's also the blessing of rest. Rest from anxiety and loneliness. A blessing of a legacy. Psalm 112 says this, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Those who fear the Lord, who... Uh, trust in the Lord, who um, trust in Him for house and home and security and shelter and sustenance and children. They will, they will in a sense, have, more often than not, have a, a family to provide for them, to help them. Even for those of us in the church that, you know, Maybe we don't, we don't have a family either, either naturally just because of circumstances of life or the sinfulness of this world or because you know, we are believers and our family has, in a sense, turned on us because they, they hate God. We have a church family. And in the church, you know, there is, as a family, there's this blessing for a faithful church of children, that the church would go on and um, it would march on. There would be a posterity. There would be successors. There would be a legacy. John Calvin, you know, in his commentary on this psalm, he says this. He says, This psalm shows that the order of society, both political and domestic, is maintained solely by the blessing of God and not by the policy, diligence, or wisdom of men. And that the procreating of children is his peculiar gift. You know, Solomon, you know, he, he had seen so much in his life and he, he had been given um, this wisdom from God as a gift, as an answer to prayer. And so not only had he seen much, but he could observe life and, and, and see things in the world and and from his position as king and, and with all his advisors and uh, the nations sending, um, sending people, administrators, uh, uh, um, other people to trade, he would, he would certainly um, hear stories of other kingdoms and, and learn even more. And he could observe life and he could see the rise and fall of families, of nations, of kings. And he could see that as he wrote in this psalm, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. He could see that even for the most diligent, for the more, most resourceful, for the most um, wise or mighty, that there is always this, this, uh, this sense that a natural disaster could come, sickness could come, a famine could come, um, another army could come, you know, a lawsuit 
could come even in those days. Um, any number of calamities could strike and you could be wiped out. You could be wiped out. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. And at the end of his life, you know, the last words that, that Solomon writes is this in Ecclesiastes 12. He says this, you know, as he's looking at his life, as he's looking at the life of others, as he observes the, the meaning of life and all the events and circumstances of life, and he's trying to gain wisdom as, as what, what is the best thing to do, what, what is the purpose of man, why are we here, why are we doing all this? He says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is, in a sense, the, the lesson of the psalm, that we are to trust God. In trusting Him, we are to fear Him, we are to honor Him, we are to rest in Him, we are to worship Him. And for those who fear Him, for those who rest in Him, for those who worship Him, He will provide. doesn't mean that we'll always have the best or we'll always be safe or we'll always be secure, but we'll have enough. We'll have what we need. We won't live in fear or anxiety or worry because we trust that God is in control. And our, our, our sole purpose is to worship Him, to follow Him, to honor Him. And Jesus writes in, or, or speaks in, in, his, in His Sermon on the Mount, and he, he, tells, he tells the people. Matthew chapter 6, He says this, uh, you know, a, a passage that I often have to go to is, is, you know, I struggle with anxiety and worry and fear just like almost everybody. And we have to constantly be reminded of this. This is a lesson for, for everybody throughout the ages, and, and especially um, for um, those of us who, who um, stumble and fall. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, Jesus tells the people there, He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And here's the point as Solomon was alluding to, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We only really have to worry about one thing. That's God's will. What's your will? What do you, what, what do you want me to do? What, what do you have for me? What, what's your desire for me? So seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Be about kingdom work. And all the needs of this life, He will give you. You, you, won't, you won't lack anything. Yes, you may be like the Apostle Paul and, and his exploits and danger of rivers and danger of false brethren and um, starvation, but he was right in line with the will of God and he had all he needed. And we, we might live safely and securely in uh, uh, prosperity and peace like many of us do now. But the whole point, our whole focus should be the kingdom of God, his righteousness, his will. This is what Solomon is alluding to. If we are focused on doing the will of God, if we are focused on him, 
then he will build our house. He will watch over our city. He will provide bread for us. He will provide a family for us. So the question we must ask ourselves is, whose abilities are you depending on? Whose works do you trust? And whose resources are you placing your hope in? We're to trust in him. We're to abide in him for Apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. He is our provider. He is our hope. He is our sustainer. He is our redeemer. He is our king. And we are to be about kingdom business. And if we are about kingdom business, then he will provide for all our needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we must confess that I'm sure there's probably not one of us in here that from time to time, struggles with anxiety or fear or worry. And we can be a fickle people. And this world um, gives us endless things to worry about, whether it's politics or what's happening around the world or the economy or um, our jobs or our homes, or our health, or relationship issues, or even what's going on in the church. There's opportunities uh, abounding to worry, to be anxious, to be fearful. But you call us to um, fix our heart, our mind on you, to keep our minds stayed upon you, that in you there is perfect peace, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and all the needs of this life will be added unto us. And So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to fix our hope on you, our trust in you, and at the same time to be obedient and diligent to do what you command us, trusting in you all the way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.